Welcome to Artists of New England. This is a podcast created to inspire you on your journey of artistic expression. Whether you are a career artist, a teacher, an emerging artist, or hobbyist, you can learn and gain support from your peers. We will explore the symbiotic relationship between these groups, lending insight and empathy towards each other. We will discover the where, when, why, and how of the creative process of artists living and working in New England, with occasional bonus interviews with gallery owners, collectors of fine art, and art historians. Perhaps today's show will bring you the aha moment you've been waiting for. Welcome to Artists of New England with your host, Laura Castanari-King, and today we are in Portsmouth with, again, a special segment by our own master, Todd Bonita. Who's going to be talking about? John Redmond, yes. Yes, please don't call me master. <laughs> Come on. Maybe in front of, uh, you can call me a master in front of my mother. You know, that's fine. But uh, no, I'm, I'm definitely not a master, but thank you. That's very sweet of you. Uh, I'm just a local goofball who's a painter yeah. and a student of art who absolutely loves it. And for me, the whole purpose of this segment is my perspective from the student, yeah. from being a student uh, of the arts. Um, I think in an earlier podcast, I confessed to you that, um, and I was paraphrasing something that Michelangelo said, and it's, when we decide to become an artist, we sort of take this unwritten oath Mm -hmm. to be an art student for the rest of our lives. And to me, that's not really lip service. I am genuinely curious to know how other artists are creating paintings. When I walk into a gallery or a museum, you know, you know what it's like. You get excited when you see a work of art and like... And for me, I'm like, how the hell did they do that? Yeah, you know, and, yeah. and so for me, it's a genuine interest cracking the codes to good paintings. Yeah. And even if I, even if it's not my objective to adopt the style or technique that they're doing, I'm mm-hmm. still curious yeah. how they did it. Yeah. And in some way, perhaps maybe there's something that I'll take away and, we're, and it will inform my own work. Yeah. So as a result of that. We're taking on. You're damn right we are. We're, ta- we're taking on Johnny Redmond. All right. So this is essentially, the premise is uh, three takeaways. We've narrowed okay. down from five to three to sort of simplify things, yeah. right? Yeah. So these are three takeaways from the perspective of a student, if you were to uh, study under the tutelage of John Redmond. Um, and so um, I've bullet pointed three things. Mm-hmm. And, and let, let, let me preface this also by saying that, you know, th- you could certainly go online and probably listen to a John Redmond first-hand uh, interview and you're going to get you're going to get the John Redmond experience for right. I, this does not pretend to do that at all this is exactly what it is this is like you and your buddy who are artists talking about art saying hey what did you get from John Redmond or who's you know what you learn from this one x y and z yeah and so th- this is really what excited me as as being in the front row of John Redmond's uh workshop he taught two workshops for my goofy little art school here yeah. in Portsmouth in 2017 and then in Ogunquit in uh 2018 and um I'm sorry, it was in Boot Bay Harbor. Um, and, uh, you know, studying with John the second time was sort of like seeing a movie the second time and you pick up things you didn't oh, get the first time sure. or it sort of clarified ideas that mm-hmm. you were sort of quasi understood. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I chose the, the top three that blew me away. Okay. And, um, and the top three that sort of impacted me um, may not be the top three that impact you if you were sitting right next to me in the same workshop. And that's a funny thing. I think yeah. that, Whenever we read a book on art, if we take a workshop, a study with a particular instructor, the takeaways you have will, in all likelihood, be different than the takeaways that I have. And that's that's a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. We, uh, we're perhaps ready for different things or right. we're chasing different things, so it makes sense. But okay, these are the three I'm going to stuff down your throat. Are you ready? Okay. So the three takeaways I, I got from Johnny Redman are, um, one, his visual voice 
or this idea of um, your visual poetry of the individual artist, right? And I'll hmm. expand upon that. I'll expand upon all of these. Two okay, is yeah. his use of color, his unique use of color. Uh, to me, it was unique. Again, maybe when I talk about it, you'd be like, that's not unique. I use that all the time. <laughs> but for me, it was it was unique and profoundly interesting. Okay. Um, and three is his uh, deconstruction, this whole concept of deconstructing the painting. And oh, is he, he the guy that wipes this stuff? He's one of the, yes, deconstruction slash oh, the squeegee, okay, right? Okay, okay, So can I just, I yeah, should have jump said in. this before, yep. but um, finding his work, his website's not really up to date, but if people are interested in, in taking a peek as you're talking at some of his work, they can either go to Instagram, right, and see some, or they could jump on this website called paintingperceptions.com. That's a great interview. And there's a lot of his work there because it was an, an actual... Uh, article right interview yeah but uh but certainly like google john redmond or go to johnredmond.com and it's john j-o-n not j-o-h so it's j-o-n-r-e-d-m-o-n-d.com and he's fantastic he he, john first came on my radar um back in about the year 2000 i was actually living in philadelphia at the time and i was taking classes and that's where he's primarily from yeah he's a philly guy yeah and uh yeah i guess i should (laughs) tell you who john is and by the way, you know, I'm going to talk about John and some of his influences and other artists. Okay. And if you don't know who they are, you know, in the spirit of all of this, yeah. like to me, half the fun is Googling names that yeah. I don't know who they are. Yeah, fine. Yes. Okay, give us a tiny bit of background on John. Yeah, well, okay, very simply put. And again, you know, this is stuff you can get offline very simply. But John is, um, he's a contemporary American painter known for his representational painting. So he, he paints nature. He wants his paintings to look like nature. But that just really doesn't, you have to look at his paintings to see that that really isn't telling the whole story. They're much more like expressive than say like a tight representational painting. It's sort of where abstract expression meets tight representational painting. I don't know. That's the best way I can verbally describe it. But is is, is most often the case when you're talking about art, you really need to look. We're doing the best we can here. Um, He paints everything from architecture, still life, figurative. He's not really a portraiture guy, but... um, He's, um, he's one of these guys who definitely, uh, in, in the art circles, you'll hear the moniker, he's an artist artist, you know, and uh, <laughs> whatever that means to you. Yeah. To me, it means someone who's, uh, who's, who's painting less for the market and more for himself and mm-hmm. really trying to say something. And I think being effective at saying something with his art. When I was in art school, that was such a throwaway line. Here, what are they saying? And this is a good segue into the first uh, okay. thing, the visual voice. But uh, again, just a, just a quick quick uh, bullets. He's from uh, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. Um, he also recently bought a home in the Berkshires in Massachusetts, uh, which uh, which is a New England connection for you. But he teaches for us up yeah. here at the Ogunquit Summer School of Art mm-hmm. uh, periodically. He does workshops. Um, he's in you know major collections all across the world. Internationally, mm-hmm. he's in a collection of the Delaware uh, Museum of Art. <clears throat> he's in a um, He's taught at the university level and he's exhibited since ni- the early 1990s, like since 1992, yeah. you know, when you and I were doing other things. Yeah. This guy was exhibiting <laughs> artwork and, and, and he's really, he's one of the, the, the living American giants as far as I'm concerned. Like mm-hmm. he's saying something important. Yeah. And, uh, and quite frankly, if you're following along at home, I think, and this is my opinion only, that when, when the history books look back at sort of this period, you know, they're going to see that something was happening in the water over in Pennsylvania at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. Mm. There's a bunch of um, painters, instructors, students um, that, that are doing something um, that has been called deconstruction. You know, don't use this as the official word on this, but, um, but th- there's, um, 
there's a number of painters who are, <clears throat> are doing uh, something called deconstruction, which in short, and I'm going to really simplify it here, it's where they make a painting and then they sort of destroy the surface, leaving okay. like a ghost-like image of what was there before and yeah. then building it back up. And it's in building it back up in that process where they actually make the art. That's a very simplified version of what they're doing. And was it's, that primarily, it came from this school? This um, is where it I, I honestly emerged? don't know enough about it. to, to, yeah. to and, and that's why I'm being very careful okay, in the choice of words here. I'm not sure it was okay. sort of invented like, yeah. I, I can't say that right, deconstruction right. was invented. Deconstruction was a literary term from, I think, the 60s by uh, some, some French philosopher. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, as it relates to art, um, there's an abundance of very uh, strong uh, painters coming from Pennsylvania who are doing this deconstruction thing. Okay. And I'll talk more about that as sure. we get to uh, number three, which is on deconstruction. <clears throat> but anyway, so let's get into this thing, baby. <laughs> let's go. Johnny Redman, his personal vision of the artist. I mean, we're talking about visual poetry. When we talked about Donald Journey, that's what his paintings were about, were visual poetry. And so I love this question. You know, what is your painting about? You know, I didn't invent the question, but the first time uh, someone asked me, hey, what is your painting about? I was like, well, uh, I, no, I just want to paint the, the still life. I want my painting. I'm trying to paint that wine bottle and the grapes. That's all. You know, I, I didn't know what they were talking about. I was an art student. I mean, that was a very deep concept yeah. to me. But... There's definitely a, a technical prerequisite. Like you have to learn how to make pictures first before mm -hmm. you can say something sure. visually poetic of what's inside of you, right? Mm -hmm. Like we all have something to say. Well, I, I presume we all have something to say inside of us. Um, you know, and, and to be honest, there's certainly a lot of fantastic technicians out there. People who can make beautiful representational paintings that look like nature and they're like shiny nickels. They're beautiful in, the, in and of themselves. Yeah. Um, and some of those folks just don't have something to say for whatever reason. Maybe they haven't lived or maybe their, 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 their goal is just simply to make something beautiful. And that's mm -hmm. fine, too. Mm -hmm. I, I certainly respond and to that. And there's a market for that, I think. There's not only a market. There's also like a genuine, authentic human response. Like, of, of course. And, right. um, <laughs> you know, and, and some, of my, uh, some of my mentors have, have, uh, have, uh, have called it the shiny nickel, you know. Okay. And I, I have to be honest. Oh. I guess I'm one of them because I do respond to like beautiful paintings. <laughs> okay. and um, shiny yeah, he called it like a shiny nickel. Like um, it's almost like a, like a fish is attracted to a shiny lure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think they're making fun of us, is what they're doing. <laughs> but I got to be honest with you. There's uh, there's nothing like a beautiful. I still respond to painting for okay. beauty's sake. Okay. So um, personal vision of the artist, visual voice. What are you saying as a painter? And I can tell you that to me, this is the most profound takeaway of of, of everything I got from John Redman. And the reason I'm I'm prefacing this i'm beginning with this rather than ending with it you know I, I believe it or not i put some thought into this i'll end with the most important thing no no <laughs> it's because when you take a john redmond workshop he hits you right in the face with this idea mm. of what's the most important thing you know and and i think largely because um because of his approach to it is is as far as my limited experience and view was i've never seen anybody approach a painting like this with this this sort of intent um and I'll certainly expand upon that, but um, I think a good way to break this down is to understand how, what other artists were saying, right? So let's take Andrew Wyeth. Just so we can understand what I'm saying. Andrew Wyeth um, has been written about widely, and <clears throat> it's, it's been written about Andrew that he was painting. They were largely about three things. One, the death of his father, or death in, death in itself, you know? There's this mm -hmm. sort of um, subcommunication of death and, and, and somberness in, um, in his work. Um, he painted Chad's Ford in Maine, certainly, but all of those paintings have sort of have a somberness. Not all of them, but a large degree of them. 
And thirdly, he was painting uh, exploitation of women, sexuality, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, Monet was painting something completely different. And the reason it's, it's, it's good to sort of uh, ponder what are your favorite artists painting? Because it, it gets you closer to understanding who you are as a painter. What am I painting for? And, and, and really, that's, that's the, really the goal of this podcast, I think, is really yeah. is, is to, what does this mean to me? I'm an artist too. What am I learning from John Redmond? Well, I'm learning to ask the question, what are my paintings about? Mm -hmm. For Monet, you could Monet was painting about light, the transition of light, light transitioning from from uh, you know uh, setting sun to uh, you know being high in the sky or the play of natural light on form. Um, Sargent, to a much different degree, was a virtuoso. His paintings were mm -hmm. about his paintings themselves. Now, look, when he was <laughs> painting portraits, he's certainly trying to capture the humanity of the sitter. All right, but when he's painting like um, landscapes or genre scenes, whatever whatever else he was painting. Um, they were, by and large, about the virtuosity of the painting. Sargent was a virtuoso. He mm -hmm. had such an incredible um, technical ability. Repertoire. Oh, it, it, it was really, a, like his toolbox, his, the range right. of his toolbox and his ability to create paintings, um, you know, you know, with check marks in every single box of, like, academic prowess is just extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And so... Guys like Sargent, maybe Andrew Zorn, Soroya, people like that, they, 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 they're into a smaller category where it's about standing there and going, my God, that is just an incredibly delicious surface. Like that painting itself is, is incredible, you know, <laughs> from the edges to the values to the carefully balanced color relationships to like the, the focal point and the secondary, like, whoa, you know, it blows your mind. It's, it's so much more than just a beautiful portrait. It's so much more. It's, it's incredibly deep uh, on so many levels. Okay. In some ways, John Redmond comes from that genre, a virtuoso. Okay. Now, look, I'm not comparing Redmond to Sargent. Redmond would snap me upside the head. <laughs> he's a very humble, humble man. And he okay. really is. He, um, whereas, um, whereas Sargent was sort of this sophisticated character, Redmond is, um, John, not that you, it's not that you're not sophisticated, John, but you're more, you're, I see you as a more humble character yeah. in this world. But what I mean is, let me draw this parallel. John's work is about the painting. It's about the painting as an object, which to me was like, wow, that's a profound concept. Mm -hmm. Some of you listening out there might be like, oh, no, no, I've heard that concept before. Well, good for you. For me, this was a <laughs> profound concept. You know, for, and think about this. What are your paintings about? I'm going to give you a few few ideas. Mm -hmm. And because these ideas over the period of my 20 some odd years of painting, all of these possible ideas I'm about to tell you have been considerations about what am I painting and trying to answer that question. Yeah. Well, in the beginning, when I was trying to figure out how to make pictures, my paintings were about just making that kind of look like the still life or sure. making that look like the landscape or making this figure look like the figure without without being clumsy. Those, that's my heroes. I didn't understand the full depth yeah. of, of poetry and, and saying something more than that. Okay. Mm -hmm. And there were other times, maybe when I was... Um, you know, uh, fascinated by a particular painter who was doing innovative things with design. Maybe that's where my head was at at that particular time. So I began to explore design more. And then perhaps there was a period of my, my work where I could look at the last 10 paintings I did and I could see my exploration of design. So now you have one that's about narrative, one that's about design. And I can tell you there was this period where I was interested in color and I studied with Colin mm -hmm. Page mm -hmm. and, and I was interested in the colorists and, um, it's less about me, and I'm trying to, when I, I tell you these stories, I'm trying to project this concept of what are you painting? What are you, Laura Casanari, and you, right. uh, whoever's listening to this, as students, fellow students, yeah. what the hell are we doing? What are, what are our paintings about? And this idea of mm -hmm. the painting being about the object. 
And, and, and just so that isn't a throwaway line for you, what the, what the hell does that mean? You know, <laughs> it's about the painting. It's, it's literally about the tactile quality of the painting. So he uses a sophisticated number of tools, technical approaches. Hmm. He uses um, the varied opacity of the paint. Like he'll use thick and thin paint. He'll use various uses of color. And I'll get into that because uh, number two is use of color. And I can expand upon that a little more. But the surface of the painting itself, and certainly the construction of the design, all of this, he's making a painting in the same way that, um, say, like a potter makes something or, or even, even a sculptor makes a, a beautiful object, you know? Is the, and does he paint alla prima? Is he in he does paint alla prima. Again, alla prima, one shot. Yeah. Uh, he does, yeah. Okay. But in most cases, he will um, he will layer, glaze, return to semi-opaque, opaque, uh, you know, textural applications in later sittings. Okay. Um, at one of his workshops, he brought a painting in progress, a studio painting. Okay. And it was nice to see because at a, at, a, at a workshop, you really only have the advantage of, of seeing the demonstrations, which sure. inadvertently are a la prima by nature of the demo, right? Yeah. Um, so it, he brought in a, a studio piece, which, which showed evidence of several sessions. Mm. He does both, you know, okay. but, um, and the works themselves, they really are works of art. You know, when you look online, you look at his work and you yeah. see, oh my God, you know, the color is mm-hmm. gorgeous. Uh, his use of dark and light values, his compositions, it's like check mark, check mark, check mark. Damn, these are good. But when you see them in person and you can see the, the tactile quality yeah. and the texture right. and what he's doing, oh, wow, you know, wow. You, you really begin to appreciate uh, the combination of words mm-hmm. explaining that he's into the tactile quality and the painting is about the painting itself and seeing it in person, the combination of those, it's like you have a eureka moment or I had a eureka moment anyway. And, yeah. and so that, that was a wonderful one for me. Nice. It's hard to talk about personal vision um, without talking a little bit about his process and how he sees design and putting together a painting. So, um, you know, in as much as this, interview is from the perspective of a student who's sitting in the front row observing a teacher and taking, hey, these were my takeaways. Yeah. I'm going to add some quotes personally from John. Oh, um, and, you know, I've had some Q&A with John myself, and I'm a, I'm a note taker right there. So these are some <laughs> things I took away that I think are relative to John's personal vision, how he makes a painting and that kind of thing. Um, I asked him what the most important thing to consider in a painting is. And, um, and he writes this, and these are his words. Make sure you are attuned to your own perceptions. That's your own visual voice, is what he's mm-hmm. saying there. Don't make assumptions about what you see. Keep questioning how. He puts that in capital letters. Keep questioning how you are seeing what is in front of you and try to understand how the various relationships within your composition feel to you. Mm-hmm. Every time teachers throw out the feel word, mm-hmm. it, I, I check out. I, to me, I do. I'm so sorry. And I have to work extra hard. Some people are like, I get it, man. I get what you're just saying. But I'm going to be honest with you, only because I know there are other students out there who are like, you know, when they start talking about touchy-feely stuff, I'm out because I think very concretely and yeah. objectively. And I understand that. But through the help of my good friend, Christopher Volpe, who's an abstract expressionist <laughs> yes. and studying people like John, I now understand a little better. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you this. Let me be the gateway <laughs> to those of you who, when someone throws out, paint what you feel, man, yeah, yeah. you know, let me be the gateway to help you understand that. Take their hand and cross them over. <laughs> That's right. And I think, let me read this next line because it'll, it'll, it'll help sort of make a gateway or bridge that understanding. So he says, um, uh, try to understand how the various relationships within your composition feel to you. Don't worry about the identity of your subject. If you pay attention 
to what the light is doing, the subject will take care of itself. Mm. That's one of the clues. And so, so here it is. Are you ready? Because here it is. I'm going to bridge what the touchy-feely nonsense <laughs> means to actually making paintings. Okay. <laughs> so what he's doing is this. He's talking about seeing and painting like an artist. What the hell does that mean? You're throwing another throwaway quote at me. Well, I'll tell you. What it means to see and think like an artist is instead of seeing the objects, and John talks about this, he says, um, don't worry about the identity of your subject. In other words, forget it's a barn. It's not a barn. Mm. It's a collection of abstract puzzle shapes of light, dark, and mid-tone color. Mm. So he's literally squinting his eyes, blurring everything so that his left brain cannot identify yeah. that it's a barn. And by blurring your eyes, he's able to see an abstract, an abstraction of light, dark, and mid-tone color. He's literally seeing like an artist. That's at the heart of seeing like an artist means, seeing abstractly, not seeing objects and things. Mm. And once you can see abstract puzzle shapes and light, dark, and mid-tone, and your brain can really, really release the idea that you're looking at a barn, for example. Then and only then, my dear, are you seeing like an artist? He said with his wizard-like voice, because it's the only way to really talk about that, because that's at the, that's the, the yeah, heart of seeing. Heart. Wait a minute, did I just? Yes, that's at the heart of seeing. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's what John's doing. He, how could you possibly paint like an artist if you couldn't see like one, right? So, um, so he's visually deconstructing he's right away. He's visually deconstructing. He's not seeing a barn. He's seeing abstract puzzle shapes. Mm. Boom. All right, good. And so um, this is at the heart of John's personal vision, this next quote. Make sure that the physical painting stays the most important thing. The physical painting. John's paintings were hmm. about the painting themselves, yeah. the tactile quality. It's not about copying your subject, but about using your subject to create a wonderful painting. Hmm. It's not about copying the barn, right? It's about using your subject, the barn, to create a wonderful painting. I'm going to take this barn and turn it into a massive of paint, you know what I mean? A surface filled with paint. Some of that paint will be transparent and thin. Some will be thick and goopy and some I'll smush into other, you know? That, that, it, it's an object. Yeah. Whoa, pow, my mind was blown because I was interested in painting barns, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and, and look, I, I can speak for myself and say it's not, it's not an easy transition. That's just intellectual property. Then you have to put that into practice and actually mm. go outdoors and squint your eyes and forget you're looking at barns and trees and objects and really exercise looking yeah he does take the most sort of everyday scene he does yeah and, and takes everyday scenes they're so everyday, phenomenal yeah. it's yeah. like wow how could that little side of that building just sort of come That's to, right. to yeah. life it takes you're absolutely on a life right. of its own if you google his work and you click yeah. on images and you see like the first 20 images of these things that you may say to yourself wow i would never think to paint just light on the side of the building the way that is that's kind of right. odd but because he's not looking for things, when he's riding his bicycle with his camera or his like artistic sensibilities of what I'm going to paint, he's not looking for the barn on the hill with the cow in the foreground. He's looking yeah. for that play of light, dark, mid-tone, mm. you know, the, the abstract forms of light and dark. Yeah. And that's what stops his eye. He sees in terms of dark and light. Let me, um, let me talk a little bit more about design and how he, he sees um, he, um, his dad was a, or still is a photographer. So he grew up in this house where photography mm. was, um, you know, photography meant something. I can tell you just from my limited experience as a teacher mm -hmm. that some of the best painters are photographers or designers. And if you think about this, photographers are looking through this little lens. It's a little rectangle, right? Yeah. And this little rectangle is a composition. 
The first four lines of every painting are already there for you. They're the top, the bottom, and the two sides of your canvas. Mm. And whatever shapes go within the confines of those four, four uh, lines is your composition. That's the stuff that goes in there. Mm. So when you're looking through a camera thousands and thousands and thousands of times, you're looking at that relationship between the first four lines, the top, the bottom, and the two sides, and the shapes. And so you, you um, over time, the, the sensitivities are yeah. developed. Uh, John grew up in a photographer's house. Did he actually participate in that, do you know? Yes, John is, um, if you look on his Facebook page, okay. every now and then he'll, he'll, he will release like a photograph he took. Okay. Uh, and they are as stunning as his paintings, wow. you know? You feel like you're going back in time. He, yeah. he, his interest in black and white photography and um, uh, like uh, these, these old uh, turn of the century, uh, I think they're tin paintings, when, uh, f- f- photographs rather, when photographs used to be printed on tin plates, I think, or something like that. Forgive me, I, this is some, I'm sure I'm, way, I'm butchering this, but he um, he has some of his photographs printed on tin, you know, so it looks like it's from the 1800s. And, and so he has that sensibility. Tin types. Tin types, thank you, yeah. That's exactly, I think, what they're called. Um, okay, uh, this is from John Redmond. I have developed a pretty intuitive sense of design, having literally grown up looking through a camera lens. My father was a photographer, and I think in terms of black and white images. Um, and this is important because John puts value before color. And um, we're spending a lot of time on, it, on his first one. The other two are going to fly right through it because a lot of it I'm covering right here. This is the heart of John right here, I think. Um, I automatically start thinking of the best arrangement of the masses of shadow and light shapes. And that's what he does when he's looking for motifs. Again, he's Just, not I'm looking curious, for the does he use a viewfinder? Does he use a viewfinder? Yeah, when he's out. You know. John doesn't use a viewfinder. It's, it's already, no, it's, yeah, it's he's, he's got a, yeah, he's got a viewfinder like in, in his brain. And his, it's yeah. already downloaded. It okay. There's one on his retina. Um, <laughs> my compositions are pretty straightforward, and I tend to pare down my images to simple arrangements of contrasting shapes. Just so it's not a throwaway line. A simple arrangement of contrasting shapes um, is this. It's... Um, if you can think of making a, a successful arrangement of light and dark shapes, one must dominate and the other one must be subordinate. So paintings derive their interest from juxtaposing elements, something big next to something small. So like more darkness next to a smaller degree of lightness, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, it's when you have something big next to something small that, that, that the idea of tension is introduced and it's tension that makes paintings interesting. So John is deliberately looking for arrangements that have, say, more light than dark or more dark than light, but not just that. That's a simplification of what he's looking for. So certainly ratio is is important to him, but it's also the shape of those ratios, um, the arrangement of them within the picture plane. And it gets more interesting. I like symmetry, John says, and often plunk down my still life subjects right in the middle of the painting. What? What did you say, sir? Doesn't that violate yeah. what we all the academic principle of don't put your stuff in the middle, middle. I tell you. Uh, well, look, all these rules are, are, uh, are made to be broken. They are. And I know if that's a can. throwaway line, too, yet, if you can. can. And you can break it by using tensions. If you put something in the middle, just make sure there are stuff in the periphery of your composition that has strong enough visual weight to pull you away from the middle. Yeah. And John talks about that and his use of, ah. of negative shapes at the corners of the painting 
do just that. They pull you away from the middle enough to, to, to make the whole space interesting mm. compositionally. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. I like the symmetry and often plunk down my still life subjects right in the middle. You rebel rouser, you. <laughs> but then try to use the negative spaces to bring dynamics into the mix. Negative space. I love this. Negative space is the most underappreciated painting tool. Mm. Use it to do something. And he, he puts in capitalization. Do something, right? Um, in the <laughs> painting. Don't just let it sit sit there and play second fiddle to some overrated positive shape. <laughs> I love John. That's he's, beautiful. He's crazy, but he's our crazy. He's our, he belongs to the art world. You know? I never met an artist who wasn't cuckoo anyway. And, but it's our cuckoo. I say it with the most affection possible. Yes. Truly, we're, yes. all, we're all a little off. Let's yeah, face it. That's good. All right? And don't pretend you're not out there. No, we're off. Look in the mirror and be proud of it, right? That's right. Because you're my crazy, and I love you for it. <laughs> I also have, and this is John's words, I also have settled on the square being my favorite format. Isn't that something? With 98% of my paintings being square. That's true. Look online oh, at his yeah. Facebook page. You'll see they're all squares. And they're 10 by 10s, by he the way. He paints them because that's how you can know. Instagram only. No, no, no. He has nothing to do with Instagram. <laughs> he thinks yeah. like a square. Somehow, this just seems natural and balanced and relates more to my personal field of vision. I don't see in a rectangle. So why paint So see, you were right. Yeah, I just love The viewfinder's on his eyeball, but it's a square. <laughs> yeah, 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 truly, right? And so, and, and that's interesting. Now, if you think about this as painters, again, and, 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 I, and I present this hoping that you, the listener, will, will, will question the same thing I'm about to present to you. When you are looking at a motif, um, ask yourself, you know, how am I seeing this? Am I seeing this as a rectangle, which is the most popular format of a painting? You know, some derivative of rectangle, like an 8 by 10, 9 by 12, 11 by 14, where it's longer than it is taller or vice versa, right? So let me actually unpackage it this way and I'll simplify it. There's four possible formats you can have in a painting, right? So I'm talking about the canvas. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at a motif, you're asking yourself, how am I gonna paint this? What's my objective? How am I gonna strategize this painting? Mm -hmm. You have four options for formats. You have what's called the landscape, which is a rectangular a derivative of something that's longer than it is taller, an 8 by 10, a 9 by 12, 11 by 14, 12 by 16, so on, the standard sizes that you would find in art supply stores. Mm -hmm. Then you have the portrait, which is a um, landscape just kind of flipped so it's taller than it is uh, longer. Right. Um, and uh, that's idealistic for portraits, obviously, right? Uh, assuming that this, it's, a portrait is made up of a face and a bust. Um, and the landscape, of, of course, is best for panning the landscape left or right, which brings us to the third one, the panorama. That's any canvas that's twice as long as it is tall. Mm -hmm. And um, and the panorama is, of course, ideal if you're going to pan the landscape. A lot of uh, landscape painters will use this um, to, to do just that, to sort of uh, replicate this idea of panning the landscape from left to right. Um, and then there's the square, which is a more symmetrical uh, shape, and actually draws your energy towards the middle. Mm. And John talks about that. He's like slapping the subject right in the middle. Mm. So it makes sense that he would choose a square for his sensibilities, you right. know? Um, love that. And listen, whether you, I think the idea here is not to, to, to replicate John. Mm -hmm. I think it's to ask the questions, you know, how do I see the world? Yeah. How do I see my motifs? What is my painting about? To me, that's all this was. I think any workshop you take, you, uh, you, you get your money's worth when you ask these questions. Mm. Okay. That was a lot of time on question or, or observation number one, but the other two rock and roll. Okay. Um, okay, very good. So uh, I, I will bullet these lickety split. 
Uh, number two was his use of color. Um, and to understand this, it, it's worth uh, looking at John's history. He, he, John went to Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. He was a student of Al Gurry. Al Gurry is, uh, was taught by a guy, was taught by a guy uh, who was taught by Thomas Eakins, you know, one of the mm. great American uh, wow. painters. Yeah. Um, so this lineage, this academic, French academic lineage was passed down. And by the time we got to Al Gurry, um, who, who taught John Redmond at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, Gurry wrote a couple of uh, really good books on art. One is uh, Alla Prima, not to be confused with Richard Smid's book called Alla Prima. Yeah. Um, but Gurry, uh, you know, um, not that it's about me, but I was lucky enough to study with Gurry at my time at Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. And I saw parallels between what Gurry was teaching and what John was teaching. And mm. I would whack myself on the head yeah. when John presented his palette. I was like, oh, wow, right. Uh, he's a PAFA guy. He must have studied with Gurry because Gurry uses color in a unique way, as does John. Mm. So Gurry, introduced, when he teaches, he, he teaches about um, using a variety of palettes. He, uh, the earth palette, the prismatic palette, the use of dye colors, transparent colors, and opaque colors. That's a pretty broad range. One of the takeaways I can see from John is that he uses all of those in his painting. He, in other words, he's expanding his toolbox mm -hmm. to bring this enormous range of ideas to his painting to, to work on the tactile quality of his painting. So he has opaque paint. He has thin paint. Redmond uses eight colors plus white. Um, and on his, uh, his supply list, they run the gamut of transparent colors. Like he doesn't just list his colors, you know, red, yellow, blue, white, blah, blah, blah. He lists them as, here's your transparent yellow, here's your opaque yellow, here's your transparent red, okay. here's your opaque red, here's your transparent earth red, blah, 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 blah. Mm. John wants you to think in terms of your palette being more expansive, uh, being a more expansive toolbox. Okay. And he wants to for you to translate this idea that you can do so much more with color than just the color itself. There's transparency, opacity, semi-opacity, thick, thin, mm -hmm. um, you know, some are reflective, some absorb light, um, and he's mushing them all together. It's the combination of understanding all these and seeing John's work there. It comes together in some incredible eureka moments. And mm -hmm. as an artist, hopefully you say, whoa, I think I'm going to look at color a little differently anyway. I don't know what it means for my work personally, but John opens doors with mm -hmm. his, his vast knowledge of color. Um, okay, so rocking and rolling right along. Um one of my last takeaways with John was this idea of deconstruction and his squeegee, right? And I'm smiling a little bit because anybody who has studied with John, they talk about the squeegee. It's a small rubber potter's tool. Oh, okay. Right? And so um, now John's, John cringes when students ask about the squeegee because it's <laughs> to him, it's not the squeegee. It's like, if you're coming to me to learn how to use the squeegee, get out, you know, um, because you're missing the, the idea. That's okay. it's not a trick. Yeah. It's not like Bob Ross who loads the, the palette knife up. Nothing against Bob. I love him. He's incredibly entertaining, but he's not teaching how to really paint. Redmond actually attempts to teach you how to paint and see like an artist, that kind of thing. But um, the squeegee, the use of it is to deconstruct. I'm going to summarize deconstruction very, I, I, you know, I'm not an authority on this topic. Mm -hmm. I'm simply a student and an observer and someone who's genuinely interested in you know, fascinated by this concept. Here it is very simply put. Deconstructionism as it relates to painting is more or less like the following. So John will create a painting, a representational painting where he constructs the painting like you normally would, laying paint down, dark light, tone, color, value, you know, putting his focal point here, blah, 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 blah. And then when it looks like nature, 
you know, looks kind of like what's before him. He just, he destroys it. <laughs> it's like, what, what are you doing to that beautiful painting? Yeah. You know, but, and he told me, I asked him about this, like the origin of this. He said, somewhere along the way, I was just making paintings and I felt like I was repeating myself and my paintings were becoming redundant and I was bored. Huh. And, um, and of course I'm thinking, wow, that, this is a genius talking to me. You know, you're, you're bored by making beautiful paintings because you're brilliant. <laughs> you mad scientist, you. <laughs> and so he just, he took a squeegee or a turpentine. He uses anything, you know, his hands, palette knives. Mm. But I think the squeegee for the students is like, whoa, you know, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, the first yeah, time yeah, they've yeah, seen yeah, an artist yeah. use something yeah. other than what's in the uh, normal art supply stores that I think is um, blows people away. But he does use it with uh, with just like like a virtuoso. Mm. And so he'll 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 destroy the surface of this beautiful painting, but leave a ghost of it. Like you can still see, oh, that's where the house was. That's where the street was. That's where that patch of light was on the sidewalk. You can still sort of see a ghost of it. But once he destroys it, it's in the reconstruction. It, it's in the recreation of the painting where the love is, where yeah. the painting where, where the painting becomes an object. Mm. And that's what his paintings are about, is in the reconstruction of deconstructing it. Boom, mind blown. Mike dropped the whole thing. Yeah. To me, that was like, yeah. wow. that is so. It made me rethink all kinds of things. And what like, tools does he use? Small. Anyway. Um, he's, he's a minimalist when it comes to tools. Um, but he, he's, he's, he's real careful to stress that the squeegee, for example, he uses power, whatever he's, whatever he's going to use. He's okay. less interested in the, in, the, in the tools as tricks and more interested in like, what, what, what can my surface say? And I'll just mm -hmm. use whatever the hell I need to use. Well, let me unpack it this way. He, <laughs> I, I can't talk about John without, without talking about how he hates line and he, um, well, again, I know I'm an unpackager, but I see uh, artists who begin paintings as, as starting paintings in two different schools. There are those who start with a line drawing first. Yes. And there are those who start with patches of color. John is definitely from the school of patches of color, but he's like, you know, he, <laughs> he's very, I hate line, he'll tell you, you know. Mm -hmm. He said, line gives you answers, like you know where you're going. He says, with patches of color, you kind of don't know where you're going. And it's that mystery mm. that helps the painting evolve. And what a poetic way to look at it, you yeah. know? And look, I, I I respect both schools. and I'm not going to pretend to even, I, I happen to still use line, but it, there's enough masters in every museum that some have used line and some have used patchworks of color mm. that we, we know that both obviously work. And that's fine. But right. I love it. He even has, he has opinions and he's, <laughs> he's like stomping his foot. All right. And that's, you know, that's great. He's a very, he's an impassioned artist who believes in what he's doing. Yeah. Um, and he makes a good point. He makes a good argument. And, um, but uh, anyway, he's just terrific. He's, uh, he's wonderful. And he taught me so much more. I, th I think it's valuable. It's valuable information. And we are putting unashamedly a plug for his workshop. To? If you insist, I'm happy to plug Ireland. John yes, Redman's workshop. Please tell us. We've had the luxury of uh, having John teach at our goofy little art school for the last two years in a row. This is the first time we're going to travel internationally with John, oh. and it's coming up in June 9th and June 9th to the 15th. It's a one-week workshop, uh, 2019. Um, a 20, yeah, 2019, and uh, it's in Ireland on the wild Atlantic coast in a small town called Ballyvahan. Oh and, um, <laughs> yep, it's just a stone's throw from the Cliffs of Moher. Now, has he uh, been there before? The Burrens. John is not. No, this will be his, uh, ah. his, uh, his grand voyage. Nice. Um, it's, uh, so we put together this all-inclusive workshop. There's three spots left. So okay. if you're interested, you can go to the website, which is Um 
um, and just click on workshops. I think actually John's on the cover, so you can just, there's something that says click here, it'll take you right to it. <laughs> and um, it'll be great. A week with John, uh, we'll be going to like uh, this place called Dung- Dunger Castle and we'll have a, uh, wow. a cool little, like a dinner theater banquet and uh, it'll be fun <laughs> things. We'll, we'll, we're going to go check out some of the pubs that have live traditional Irish music. Mm-hmm. And um, we have a, a pub scheduled every single night we're there. Not that you have to go to the pubs, but yeah. th- there's some cultural and local options that'll be fun nice. to add some flavor to John's already amazing ability to teach and articulate complex ideas and introduce innovative ideas like the three that I've shared with you here today. Nice. Um, so there you have it, Miharti. <laughs> Well, that's a wrap. Sounds great. And I'll have that information on the website as well, theartistsofnewengland.com. All those links, if they forget what you said and what I said, go there. Yep, you're down right. Thank you for doing what you do. You're fantastic. I mean that. Thank you. Thanks. See you. Bye. Bye. If you found inspiration from today's show, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast and share it with a friend or two on social media. Also, take a moment to write a quick review on iTunes or share your takeaways from today's show on artistsofnewengland.com under today's episode. And while you're there, you'll find links to the topics mentioned in today's show. And don't forget to peruse the growing library of podcasts and resources. Thanks for listening. You got beauty to share with the world that no other human has. So get in the ring and pick up that brush.